Okay, we probably should get started. <clears throat> so it turns out we're just going to get through maybe the first 17 verses of John 1, and so a little slower than anticipated. All right, but um, I'll try to give you a sense when we're done about uh, what we're going to talk about next week. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, just now for each person here, we, uh, I would just ask that you would allow us to um, quiet our minds from all of the other uh, busyness and stress and things that are going on. Um, help us to focus on you during this time. Um, please lead us closer to you, that you become more relevant to part of our daily life. And uh, also help us to see more clearly uh, why exactly Jesus came and what he revealed about you. Amen. The more that um, I read John, you know, tend to think of a book like Revelation. Boy, now there's something really meaty. I want to get into that because there's a lot of depth to try to put it all together, all the symbols. Um, but the more I read the Gospel of John, I realize how it is just incredible how this book is put together. There is amazing depth and um, intention by the writer, John, here that... Um, the way he put this together has an incredible depth of meaning that uh, just seems to go on several uh, layers. And of course, n- I think it's no accident here that John decides to begin his gospel with the same words of Genesis, in the beginning. Okay, he's wanting to bring us back and to draw some parallels between creation okay, and who was the creator and then drawing us to uh, the life of Jesus. So we have in the beginning, and last year we talked about this passage in Genesis 1 quite a lot, I think in one of our first or second Bible studies, but of course in the Bible opens, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, the darkness, was, uh, the earth was formless and void, tohu vabohu, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And last year we talked about how interesting it is here that formless and void, that tohu vabohu as it's used um, in not too many places in the Old Testament, how that has to do with spiritual rebellion. And the word, the Hebrew word here that is used for darkness so often is uh, a sinful rebelliousness. And so that there, there seems to be, uh, even in this passage here, a, a deeper meaning perhaps um, causing us to think about this, uh, this cosmic conflict And you know, there was that serpent in the tree, in the perfection of Eden. So not all was right here, even in the very opening of of, uh, the Bible. Kind of alludes to to something else that is going on. But we have the same, uh, very similar opening here in John 1, that in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was already with God in the beginning. Everything came into existence through him, Not one thing that exists was made without him. He was the source of life, and that life was the light for humanity. The light shines in the dark, and the dark has never extinguished it. This is the real light, the light that comes into the world and shines on all people. So um, we have the interesting parallels here in the beginning, and we have Jesus here in John 1 being identified as the Word, the Creator. In both passages have a lot to say about light and darkness. So I'm going to go through some of these. Uh, First, let's talk about the word. What does it mean, the word? And many of you know that uh, the Greek word for this is logos, 
And I put a picture of a math book here because when you do math, you are thinking logically. Okay, so there is a, a, a logic here. It would be closely related to this word. And so I like the description here that logos here is used as Jesus comes as the divine logic. Okay, what does that mean? Here's a description that I really like from uh, Greg Boyd on what is logos. Okay, here's his definition. Jesus is God's one true self-portrait. Jesus is the embodiment of the divine logic. The Greek word translated word is logos, which refers to God's self-revelation. Whenever God truly reveals himself, John is saying, it looks like Jesus. We catch glimpses of this self-revelation in the Old Testament, but only in Jesus is God's true character unambiguously revealed. And that seems to be, if we just had to say, what is the big point here of John? What theme comes up repetitively in the Gospel of John? It is that Jesus and the Father are one and the same in heart, mind, and character. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's that message is so repetitive. So it makes sense here that the Logos would be, this is the clearest revelation of who God is, the divine logic, the one true self-portrait of what God is like. And this, this whole passage concludes, I think just kind of nailing this down, that no one has ever seen God, the only Son who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And we, it seems, don't often, as much as we should, consider the mission of Jesus as primary mission to reveal who the Father is, to reveal the character of God. Jesus' mission is frequently reduced to uh, needing to make a payment. Okay, We're going to talk about that actually next week. But John seems to really prioritize Jesus came to reveal God to us. No one has ever seen God. And again, we have lots of people in the Old Testament that saw God. John is not denying that God came to Abraham and God came to uh, Moses and other individuals. But the meaning here is no one has really seen God. If we really want to see what God is like, we need to look at Jesus, who is the same as God. He came to make him known. So I think we, we do need to prioritize as Christians. We want to know what God is like. We get a revelation of God throughout the whole Bible. Okay, but the, the clearest, the 2020 vision, glimpse, picture, what God is like is seen in Jesus. And so we need to let that, that perfect image um, now let's look back on the Old Testament and let's, let's reevaluate everything we think about God based on God's self-revelation in Jesus. Uh, there's another interesting um, part of this logos here. This is supposed to be a bank teller. And the word for teller, the bank teller, actually comes from also from this uh, logos. So what does that mean? What does a teller do? They count out your money. Okay, that's the, the meaning of a teller. So uh, we could also see perhaps that Jesus comes as the one to count out the story to us, to count out, to reveal to us, um, again, the heart, mind, character of what God is like. Okay, so Jesus is the Logos. And the other thing I mentioned that we see such a parallel is this light and darkness. And Jesus is so many times contrasting here between light and darkness. Uh, it's, it's so redundant. I just have a few verses here. In Matthew, the people who live in darkness will see a great light on those who live in the, land, in the dark land of death. 
the light will shine. So we have in Genesis, let there be light. And we have here in the New Testament, Jesus comes to also bring light into the darkness. And uh, certainly John um, uses just, you know, at the end of the Gospel of John, he says there's so many things that Jesus said and did, there's no way they could be contained in all the books of the world. So what he chooses is very intentional. And he chooses to talk about this theme of light many times. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness. It's these passages we talked about last time that led C.S. Lewis to say he could not have just been a great moral teacher. I am the light of the world. I mean, just, just things like that where, where Jesus um, it's, just can't be a good person that came and said and did those things. While I am in the world, I am the light for the world. And I'm, I've come into the world as light so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. And so in 1 John, here he really condenses it down. What does this mean? What are we talking about with Jesus being the light of the world? And in 1 John 1, 5, now the message that we've heard from his son and announce is this, the message. We had to really bring it all down to a single point. What is it? It's that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So God being light is God's goodness, God's character, God's heart of love, God's self-sacrificial, the way he lived and treated people, that is the light. And the more we come to see uh, really Jesus and equate him with God, the more we see God as light and these dark images of God um, vanish. So God is light is a character um, representation. Um, the other thing in John that's talked about a lot is uh, glory. Here in this first passage, uh, we read that the word, the Logos, be- became human and lived among us. We saw his glory. It was the glory that the Father shares with his only Son, a glory full of kindness and truth. Now, what usually comes to your mind when you think of glory? What do you think of? Just the word God's glory. Okay, so someone said character. That wasn't my image of God's glory. For most of my life, it was power, brightness, those kinds of things. And if we, see, if we say that Jesus came to reveal God's glory, I mean, Jesus didn't walk around with a super bright face. And, you know, he wasn't just overwhelming in terms of the power uh, relationship. So the glory here would seem to be, again, we get a clue here, a glory full of kindness and truth, that the glory actually does seem to be, uh, again, more of a character representation. And, and we, can, we can actually, uh, I think, point to several places in the Bible to make that point. And Paul in 2 Corinthians uses the same kind of wording that we see in Genesis 1 and in John 1. And just listen to this. I think this is a really remarkable passage. They do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. There again, we have darkness and uh, and Satan. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Again, the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. The God who said, out of darkness the light shall shine. Hey, that's Genesis 1 is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory shining in the face of Jesus. And again, what we see shining in the face of Jesus is not a a physical brightness. This has to be referring to a knowledge of God's goodness, 
his beauty, his character, that we see most clearly shining in the face of Jesus. So again, the, the glory is much more than brightness and power, as it's described here for Jesus. The other thing I like about this passage, um, I think sometime we'll just have a talk on what is the good news, but the good news here, the good news about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God, the good news is, is bigger than personal salvation. The good news here is about the glory, the character, the kind of person that Jesus revealed God to be. Okay, that's the ultimate good news about what kind of person God is. Okay, and if I could just point to one Old Testament passage to talk about what is God's glory, uh, I would turn to Moses who said, please let me see your glory. Okay, I still remember reading this as a child and I thought, boy, we're going to get to see a physical description, nose, eyes, what God looks like. And of course, when God comes by, he pronounced his holy name and the Lord passed in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. And so what we get here when God comes to reveal his glory to Moses is, is not uh, so much the, in the power brightness realm. It is more in what is God like. And here we have a description. That's God's ultimate glory. Okay, so uh, my point here is that Jesus comes, John seems to make the point that Jesus comes as the revealer of God's glory, the revealer of God's character. And we say, or at least some do, that Jesus laid aside his divine prerogatives to primarily, let's just, let's see what God is like in character. Was Jesus omnipotent? Well, he said, I can do nothing of myself. It's the Father who does these things through me. Uh, was he omnipresent? Well, he had to travel around and do things. Was he omniscient? The disciples asked him, you know, when, when is the second coming? And he said, I don't know, only the Father knows. And so uh, what really needed to be answered, the key thing is we'll have a chance next time, I think, to explain, is the issue of who God is, God's character. So Jesus laid aside all of this so that we can primarily focus and reveal on this is what God is like. Okay, so I'm just going to um, point to uh, some of the passages in John uh, where the writer wants to highlight the fact that Jesus equals God and then I want to get uh, a little bit of your opinion. So Jesus did something and then in saying this, he made the Jewish authorities all the more determined to kill him. Not only had he broken the Sabbath law, but he had said that God was his own father and in this way had made himself equal with God. And you'll notice every time that people want to stone Jesus, it's for blasphemy. It's when he equates himself with God. Okay, so they interpreted what Jesus was doing as, um, hey, you know, you are equating yourself with God and that's why they were so outraged and wanted to stone him. We have Jesus saying just a few verses later, I mean, if you want a clear verse on the judgment, here it is. The father judges no one, period. But he's given the son the full right to judge. Okay, now, what is this elevation here of the son as the one who is our judge? Again, that, that's, that's very much putting Jesus up on a high pedestal. Or Jesus would say, if you knew me, you would know my father also. And then in this long passage in John 9, uh, this is one of the clearest passages where Jesus said, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. And they said, who are you? 
I am who I am. And then the whole passage concludes with Jesus saying, I'm telling you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And what do you think that meant to his audience? What did they hear in that? That Jesus is saying, I am the I am. Yeah, this would bring them back to those revelations of God in the Old Testament at the burning bush. And Jesus here making this very radical claim to be the I am, to be the one that talked with Moses at the burning bush and other places. And again, if we doubt that they really took it that way, well, you know, they picked up stones for blasphemy. Again, this is outrageous, an outrageous claim. Okay? It's either true or it is really outrageous. Okay? And uh, the other one, I don't have it on here, but um, as Jesus was uh, after the upper room and the guards are coming out to arrest Jesus, okay, and they say, where is he? And uh, uh, Jesus says, I am he. Now, in most translations, but the he is actually supplied. What Jesus actually said is, I am. And when he said that, what happened to the guards? They all collapsed, right? And so really, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his death, he declared himself to be uh, really God in human form, the I am. In John 10, the Father and I are one. In John 12, whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. And in the upper room, Jesus said, now that you have known me, you will know my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, what does that mean? You do know him and you have seen him. And I am so glad that the disciples seem so often timid to ask questions. And I'm so thankful here that Philip was brave and said, Lord, show us the father. That is all we need, despite what Jesus just said here. You have seen him. You do know him. What do you think Philip means by asking the question? What's the meaning there? Well, um, I, I wonder if he's meaning that, you know, the God we've been reading all these stories about, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, Uzzah and the ark. Uh, could I go through all of these stories in the Old Testament? Could we see him? You know, the one that did all those powerful things. And Jesus here just nails it down. Again, for a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? So I think Jesus really forces us, you know, Jesus, um, what he said and did and and all of these radical things to reevaluate everything we believe about God and to at least, let's start with this focal point, at least for me, that's been what is most transforming these years going through the Bible studies with students, is more to center on this as, uh, I don't know of anything more important than that. Everything we think about God, let's start here, and admittedly, we will have some challenges as we read through the Old Testament. We're going to go back to the Old Testament once we go through John, um, here probably in a couple months, and so we're going to have a lot of stories that will challenge this hypothesis that Jesus is the same, Jesus is God. He is the perfect reflection of who God is. But let's start with that as our, um, our idea about God and let's ask questions related to that. So Jesus came as God in human form to reveal the outrageous beauty of God's true character. And what I want to talk about in the next 15, 20 minutes is, so what? What difference does this make? And so maybe I'll just stop here and just see if you have any questions. Um, 
does this make a difference in the way we think about God, the way we live our lives? Um, what difference does it make equating Jesus with God? Yes? I think it makes it, um, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you see the power of God. Sometimes it makes it seem that he's almost too designed, that he doesn't know what human suffering is like. So when Jesus became mad, it made it that much more powerful because it made it more personal to say that he knows what it's like to be in this place. And there mm-hmm. He knows what he's saying when he says you can overcome. Okay. So I think that's why it's that much more powerful than Jesus became mad. Yeah, it, do, it does make it meaningful when we have, God doesn't just tell us, hey, love your enemies and do this and do that, but we see God in human form loving his enemies, even laying down his life for enemies. And that, that makes it, I think, sink in more for us. We see God doing that. We want to live that way also. Was there another hand somewhere? Yes. I've uh, struggled over these passages many times, and uh, one of the things that's often been a quandary for me is... <coughs> Our statements, uh, Christ's statements of, uh, you know, Father's greater than me, um, and Paul says uh, that he emptied himself and took the form of a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the question that always comes to my mind is how completely did he empty himself? And, uh, and because it makes a big difference in how we interact with, especially the uh, Islamic community mm-hmm. uh, and other faiths that hold, uh, to other witness, other faiths that hold that uh, Christ is. Um, you know, a divinely inspired person, um, but more of a, maybe not completely equal with God, um, as uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit, born Virgin Mary, and all those things. So I think those are, those are some things that I, I, I'm not sure what to do with completely. Yeah. Uh, so with regards to your first statement that, uh, you know, Jesus putting himself lower than the Father, um, you know, the, the Trinity is very interesting when you look at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and of course, we have Jesus saying, he didn't walk around and say, hey, I'm God, I'm God. Get down and worship, I'm God. He said, look at the Father. But then we have the Father in other places, like in Philippians, giving the Son a name that is higher than any other name. And we have the Holy Spirit not telling us about himself, but when we get to John 12, 13, and 14, we have the Holy Spirit revealing God to us through Jesus. So it seems like all the members of the Trinity are pointing to the others, almost in this other-centered love. You know, very interesting, the relationship between the, uh, the Trinity there. Um, but I don't see the Bible encouraging us to put Jesus down a notch from the Father. I see them each deflecting love and honor and all of that to each other. And I, I, I think your point about relating to other faith communities is really important. Um, I have uh, fairly recently actually had a conversation. I have a Jewish patient at the VA and we talk about this kind of stuff every once in a while. And the biggest thing for him is that there is no way God would come as a human. That that to him just seems inconceivable, you know, to live in a womb for nine months, to be born, um, to be dependent on a mother for milk and all of that. that. That's inconceivable. And I think that is hard, even as Christians, we don't tend to think about God in that way so much. I think that's the most incredible thing about God, that we can think he actually did those things. But, um, and I, I had a similar experience with, um, uh, actually, uh, um, I did a Bible study for the Allied Health Group several years ago, and there was a physical therapy student. Um, and so he was coming from a uh, background in, uh, as a Muslim, 
And that also was the biggest thing for him, God actually becoming a human being. Um, so we want to be careful how we relate that information to others, but I think that's what should be so transforming for us as Christians, to actually believe that and then to make that a part of how we live and how we treat people. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think we should learn so much from the Pharisees because when you think about it, God has just had rebels all the way through the Old Testament. But then we have the Pharisees as a people who, you know, Jesus talked about how much they read their Bibles, they paid tithe, they went to church. Um, you know, we just go through all the outward things that they did. It was a pretty good list. But the one thing they didn't have is they didn't know God. Because when God came in human form, they said that he had a demon. And I would suggest that for us, we may have a good external list also, that if we don't know God as Jesus revealed him to be, we're in the same situation. So I, I think that is, his interaction with the Pharisees is, is really important. Um, let me just go through and feel free to interrupt me here, but I'm going I'm to talk about how I see this as uh, important and how this has changed some things, that, um, some things that I believe over the years. One is, I think we want to use Jesus as the ultimate interpreter of the Old Testament. And when things seem in conflict, let's let there be a little tension. Okay, and let's think about it, let's talk about it, but let's recognize that there is some tension between Jesus, who didn't kill anyone. Okay, yes, he did drive the people out of the temple, but as some people have said, he, he hit the furniture, not the people. Okay, so there, there is some tension there, and I think there are some, some important clues. One is, um, you know, Jesus' first sermon, Sermon on the Mount. He kept saying, well, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say... So yes, we do have eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, now I've come to reveal something better. Okay? Now I would say that God did give them eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament. But I think what we see in the Old Testament is God meeting a very hardened, rebellious people. And we may have talked about this last year, but their idea of justice was uh, vengeance, really, where the punishment exceeded the crime. So your neighbor does something to you, you come back with something that's even worse, they come back with something that's even worse, you have this escalating sense of justice. And so an eye for an eye in that sense is perhaps an improvement. Okay? But Jesus says, no, let's, let's move it radically further. Uh, let's now love our enemies. Um, and uh, this whole passage here, because this is not, uh, we'd have to spend a long time on this, but the Pharisees came and said, well, you keep contradicting the Old Testament. And here they're talking about divorce laws. And uh, I would just like to apply this verse to half of the difficult passages in the Old Testament where Jesus said, okay, yes, that's there in the Old Testament, but it was a concession to your hard hearts. It was not what God had originally intended. A lot of the rules and things in the Old Testament we see that can make God look very harsh and severe, um, I would say they were a concession to the severe rebellion, the hard hearts of the people in that time. It was not what God had originally intended. Okay, so we want to, as we understand the Bible, obviously we don't want to take eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth as the way we're going to treat people, but we need to see God meeting people where they were at that time and ultimately trying to lead us to Jesus, to something much better. Um, the other I would like to say is just how we do uh, theology. And I just thought of this here last minute, but what I mean by that is when we have a question, an issue, something that comes up, I think our first initial impulse could say, okay, let's consider the issue. What did Jesus reveal about this? What, let's start 
with what Jesus revealed and let's see how we can work it out in that realm. And so I'm going to show you just a little one-minute video clip. Uh, There's a pastor, his name is Brian Zond, that I really appreciate, and he's very similar, always focusing on God's character as Jesus revealed him to be, and he's in a debate just last week uh, on Calvinism. Okay, and so it was an interesting about a two-hour debate, and the, the issue was really does God predetermine before birth whether people will go to hell and heaven. So that was kind of the discussion. And this, I don't mean to be harsh because I know there, there probably are some Calvinists, there usually are some medical students. Some of the, uh, actually for two years in a row, it was a Calvinist medical student that helped organize the Bible study. So um, I, my point here is not to attack Calvin, but rather to see how he would approach the issue more from, um, let's start by talking about what Jesus revealed and let's go from there. So, say, but how I really want to respond is Christologically. And I make this axiom, this statement. Okay. Now you get to see my Facebook page. Okay. So, he started out by saying, yes, I could throw all my Bible verses at you. At you. Yes, we could do this philosophically. Yes, we could do this. Let me, we could do it this way. But I want to start by saying, God is like Jesus. And now let's talk about Calvinism. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Jesus is the only perfect theology. I want that to sink in. Jesus is the only perfect theology. The Bible is the inspired witness to the Word of God who is Jesus Christ. What the Bible does infallibly is bear witness to the Word of God who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. Jesus is what God has to say. Now, the great theme of John's Gospel is that the Word became flesh in Christ and that in Jesus we see what God is like. John never departs from that theme and it's in John that we hear Jesus say, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So what if God really is like Jesus? What if when we look at Jesus we are perceiving the personality of God? Would this be good news? Well, this is the good news, that God is like Jesus. But Calvin's caste system looks nothing like the radical hospitality of Jesus. How is it good news to say... God's going to save some of you, but most of you are damned from eternity for eternity. You say, well, we don't say that. Yeah, that's because it's the dirty seat. Okay, so I'm going to stop there in a debate. It's not fair to take him out of context here. Um, But I would like to say, you know, how we do theology, let's, let's start there. God is like Jesus. Now, does this fit with how we're going to understand this or that issue? Um, The other thing I would just say, I wanted to show some quotes here of individuals. Um... I think I would have agreed to this, with this my whole life. Yes, Jesus is divine, he's God, but it, it didn't really sink in as something that was transforming. So let me read some individuals here. C.S. Lewis, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is a supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And if we read here this whole passage, what what C.S. Lewis is saying is Jesus is the one that shatters 
our image of God. He recreates it. He makes it more beautiful. But we need to continue to reshape, to mold our picture of God through the revelation of God in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, Brendan Manning would say, we cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. We must now deduce everything about God from what we do know about Jesus. There's another Elton Trueblood who said, the historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It's far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. Okay, and Alden Thompson, if any of you went to Walla Walla, um, he, he just describes his experience. And this was similar to mine as well, although I didn't go to divinity school, as he will describe here. When I was growing up, I tended to see the God of the Old Testament as the tough one. Jesus was so gentle, I didn't even see him as God. I knew he was son of God and divine, but God himself, not really. Some vivid Old Testament stories and the picture of Jesus pleading with the Father on my behalf had convinced me that only as a last resort would the Father let me slip through the back door into the kingdom. Not until I was a second-year seminary student did the truth strike home that Jesus was God in the flesh. Unless you have had such an experience, you can't possibly imagine the joy that flooded my soul. No longer was I haunted by the picture of a distant and reluctant God. If God himself took human flesh and came to earth to save sinners, he must really want me in his kingdom. The whole universe suddenly became a much friendlier place. Okay, and so that's the experience that very similar to what I have had. Okay, so how does it make a difference? I think it makes a huge difference if we said how we live. If we believe that Jesus came not to be served but to serve, we see that God serves, I think that makes serving very uh, desirable. Okay, uh, if we see Jesus saying, I am gentle and humble, let's incorporate humility um, into our picture of who God is. And when we see Jesus repeatedly, so many times, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, this would be very hard if we just had God on a distant throne telling us to live this way. But as we said, when we see Jesus live that way, you know, it's by beholding that we become changed. When we really appreciate that's what God is like, I think that's when these things begin to happen in our own life. <clears throat> so Jesus is what God has to say. Let me give you just a few examples. Um, of course, every day, and when you work in the hospital, you will see this uh, so often, suffering and injustice, things that are not fair. A mother here who lost her son, and so we, we ask frequently, well, where was God in this situation? I think if we take that in all of human history, we have three and a half years, okay, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, where that is what God looks like, that's what God's kingdom looks like, and let's extrapolate that out, then we have Jesus coming on a funeral, okay, of a dead man was the only son of a woman who was a widow, Jesus happened to walk by, probably not by chance, and when the Lord saw her, we see this so many times, his heart was filled with pity for her, and he said to her, don't cry, and of course he resurrected her son. I would say in every instance of injustice, this is the face we want to imagine here. God filled with pity. Okay? And of course, when, when God's kingdom was on earth in the person of Jesus, um, you know, he never would have walked by without healing someone like this. Now, we need to talk about why doesn't God do this all the time. Okay? But, but for now, let's just say what we see in Jesus those three and a half years, that's what God would like to do in every circumstance. Um, horrible suffering uh, that we see in the world, 
starvation. Um, this isn't a perfect parallel, but I, I like the story of Jairus and how, remember, he resurrected the girl and the family is all excited. And you would think, Jesus, he's done his thing, he's going to be out of there. But it's Jesus, after resurrecting the girl, that is concerned and said, give her something to eat. Um, you know, that, that he would be interested in a little detail like that. Certainly, God is uh, very affected by starvation and all of the problems that happen throughout our world. We see that in Jesus, his attention to little details. Um, so again, the, the injustice and suffering you will see in a hospital setting, we have Jesus encountering these people who were suffering. Uh, the lepers uh, that would come and kneel down, and this one uh, said to Jesus, if you want to, you can make me clean. And again, we see Jesus here. Whoever's writing this is describing the face of Jesus. So try to imagine what that looked like. But he was filled with pity. He reached out and touched him. I do want to be clean. So but the basic point here is we want to say when we read the Gospels that we don't do it quickly. Read every story and then reflect and basically tell yourself God is like that. God is like that. When we see Jesus doing this, God is like that as well. Um, also, just thinking about outcasts. What do we do with outcasts of society? Um, we see Jesus coming and hanging out with outcasts. I'll, I'll read the Message Bible here because it just has a little punch. But it's, this is truly what happened. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, which was, if we back up a few verses, prostitutes, tax collectors, and fishermen, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? So um, I think it is a misrepresentation uh, really when we say, well, God is too holy to look on sin and sinners. If Jesus was God in human form, he lived with sinners. He hung out with the riffraff of society. Okay? And again, that's how taking this, uh, this view of Jesus, who he was, I think can change the way that we look at some of these things. And as we said, most radically, again, just thinking that God actually condescended uh, to grow up as a baby and the cross, which is uh, the clearest revelation of who God is. That makes a big difference how we view the cross. Do we see God in human form on the cross or do we see God somewhere else doing something to his son on the cross? makes a big difference if we see Jesus as God in human form, forgiving his enemies, laying down his life, for those who um, persecuted him. Um, that makes a big difference in how we view God um, as opposed to God punishing his son on the cross. So we will definitely talk a lot about the cross here as we get to the end of John, but I think this is where we really need to, it all comes together, we need to ask who was the one on the cross. So next time I think we're going to read, uh, we're just going to talk about a verse at the end of John 1 where John the Baptist said, here is the one that takes away the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we're going to talk about what that means next time. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this record we have, the Gospel of John, uh, that makes such an intention point to uh, tell us who Jesus is. And, and certainly that would be uh, wonderful news if we uh, really are settled in understanding that uh, Jesus was God in human form and perfectly reveals who you are. Uh, for each person here, we just pray that that good news would, uh, would sink in and would make a real difference in our own lives. Amen.